Wrestling fans, are you ready? This is Tuesday. You people bought a ticket to see me, so shut up. Wrestling Tuesday with Jonathan Hood. First of all, Dusty Rhodes, I think what you are is a big, ugly, low-class, redneck goose. That's what I think you are. Yeah, I put it. I know I put it. But I'm most of all, the baddest man around in the world today. Follow the show at WrestlingTWT on Twitter and Instagram. But remember, my fireflies, as always, I'll light the way. And all you have to do is let me in. Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday. The bottom line is, in all my magnificence, you're going to be mine. Here's Jonathan Hood. It is Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday with Jonathan Hood right here on ESPN 1000 and the brand new ESPN Chicago app. Thanks so much for being with us. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WrestlingTWT. Every Tuesday at 8.30, our special time, 8.30 on Tuesdays, we give you something wrestling, give you something sports entertainment. Tonight, we talk to a friend of the program, Chris Zellner, from the Between the Sheets podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, look for Between the Sheets podcast. And not just Between the Sheets with Chris Zellner and David Bixen's band, but no, there is something special that it stands out to me about Between the Sheets because if you go to that feed, you can find a brand new podcast that's part of the family for Chris Zellner. That's the pay window. The pay window is something that Dusty Rhodes would say very often in promos, and Chris Zellner joins us here on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Uh, Chris Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. Anytime, man. Glad to be back on the show. Absolutely. Uh, so this is this is right up my alley. The pay window. You just had your first episode, and we've asked those that are longtime wrestling fans to check that out on that Between the Sheets podcast feed. This is '89. So '89, I was a junior in high school. It was my worst year uh, in high school, and the reason why is because me and my friends would always talk about what's going on in wrestling in '89. That's probably why I went to summer school. I spent so we spent so much time <laughs> trying to figure out Flair, Steamboat, Flair, Funk. What's Gary Hart going to do? So that was my whole existence in school in 89. I had to sharpen things up in 90, but 89 was the worst. But it was the best because, for me, it was so intriguing. Tell us about the podcast um, uh, and its origin, The Pay Window. Okay, uh, about five years ago, when I started my first uh, podcast series, my Exile on Bad Street series, which I still do, um, the the second or third episodes, both of them, actually. Uh, the second one was about uh, the Universal Wrestling Federation, Bill Watson's promotion and the death of, of that promotion in 87. And then we decided, well, we might as well go ahead and cover the death of Jim Crocker Promotions in the episode after that. So the thought process was, and, and Dylan Hale's my co-host on the pay window, um, was on those shows. And, we always planned on doing something um, to, you know, maybe start up and, and go through it in 89. And time went on, you know, Between the Sheets started. Between the Sheets takes up a huge amount of time for me. Um, so it just it, it, it fell by the wayside. And over the past few months, I've had several people ask me, when are you going to do a podcast about WCW? Because WCW is one of the most popular things we talk about on the Between the Sheets podcast. 
the whole WCW everybody thing that I started up years ago, right. uh, gained some traction on Twitter and stuff, and people use it. And um, I just thought about it, and I was like, well, it needs to happen. And we, we got, we've got this pandemic going on, and, you know, I was thinking, man, I need something new, something fresh, something different. And I talked to Dylan Hales, and uh, Dylan works for uh, Indie Wrestling TV, IWTV. And, of course, there's no live wrestling right now, so his schedule is not as hectic as it normally is. So I, I ran it by him. I said, would you be interested in doing this with me? Because I wanted to do it, but I wanted him to be part of it. Because me and him, we both live, breathe WCW in, in, a, in our childhood because I'm from South Metro Atlanta. I'm in between Atlanta and Macon. So I'm surrounded by WCW wrestling every on each side of, of where I'm at, from the north to the south to the east and the west. WCW was running shows near me. And Dylan, at the time, was living in Charleston, South Carolina, where they were running shows in South Carolina all the time. And he had a friend of his that, that uh, was able to get him tickets to the shows in Charleston. So he was going to a lot of WCW shows. I was going to WCW shows. So this, I mean, this was something that, you know, is near and dear to our heart and, and, and doing a child, you know, to our, from our childhood. And the thing is, is that the main, the main crux of the whole thing was um, Guy Evans wrote a great book, the Nitro book, about uh, the history of Nitro WCW from that era, from 95 to the end. And, you know, I've had, like I said, I've had people ask me, what about the history of WCW before Nitro? And there's a lot there. So my thought process was, okay, let's do this, kind of like how we do Between the Sheets, how we do our Between the Sheets Patreon shows, where we go week by week, but only WCW. And, it, it, you know, start with the NWA, then when they turn into WCW. So where Exile Bash Street left off five years ago, at Starcade 88 in the end of 88, the first episode picks up in January 1989. So what I do is, you know, I, I use the, the three major newsletters of the era, which is Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer, of course, Wade Keller's Pro Wrestling Torch, which was just really starting to gain its foothold in this era. It wasn't what it would become, but it's getting there. And the most important one, probably for the first four years of WCW, at least it was going to be to our show, is Matt Watch by Steve Beverly. Steve Beverly is a guy who um, is in the television industry. He was living in uh, Jackson, Tennessee, uh, Columbus, Georgia, before he moved to Jackson. So Steve Beverly was the insider, and he was treated differently from the other newsletter guys by the guys at WCW, such as Jim Hurd and Chad Petrie, the two bosses, the big bosses, because they took him seriously because he's not a wrestling guy. He's a TV guy. So he's able to get all these on-the-record conversations with these two guys. And as the first show proves, I mean, it, he gets stuff that nobody else would get. And as the series will go along, I mean, you're going to experience some stuff that a lot of people have never heard of before. Kind of like what Guy Evans did in Nitro book, but Guy did it with – 
people inside the company that were not specifically on the talent side. He went with people that were part of production and people that worked in the office. So he got this whole different vibe of WCW than what you normally would hear about. So our show from 89 to the beginning of 92 will have that from Matt watch and it's, uh, it's, it's really great stuff. And it's something that, uh, I'm, I'm definitely excited about. We, we try to do a month of show. We did January. Uh, the next show will be coming out in, the, in a week or two where we'll cover February on this show. We'll actually have some big wrestling to talk about because we have a clash of the champions and shot down rumble in a matter of a week, but you know, between each other, five days. So we'll actually have some wrestling to talk about. Plus, we have all kind of other stuff to talk about as well. So basically, what this show is, is, is going to hit all the news, all the, the rumors, uh, TV ratings. It's, it's going to be the most comprehensive look at WCW that any podcast has ever done. Chris Zellner from the Between the Sheets podcast with me, Jonathan Hood, on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. So... I think one of the reasons why this struck me when I saw that in the feed and listened to the podcast, Chris, is that this, in 89, I'm watching the NWA as an NWA fan and WCW fan without Dusty Rhodes for the first time. So so after 88, after Starcade 88, here comes uh, the NWA without Dusty Rhodes around. And it was it was not odd. Actually, for me, it was refreshing because for someone who went to nwa events at the uic pavilion all the years it, it ran here you know it'd be eight thousand people every time they'd run here and they'd all look down the aisle during the main event looking for the run-in because it was never a clean finish in the main event for a rick flair world title match like everyone would just crane their head down the rampway on the right side of the building waiting for jj waiting for whoever to interfere in a rick flair match so i think that it was refreshing in a way to see, not see Rhodes and to be able to see a different level or a different look for the NWA at that time. What do you remember most about Rhodes not being in the NWA in those first couple of months? Because you've, you've covered it. It was definitely different. Yeah, I mean, it's a totally different philosophy, totally different style of wrestling. There's a talent turnover. Um, there's a different look. You know, but that's not, I mean, that's more of a Turner thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is that a lot of this early stuff, it wasn't for the positive. Um, we'll get, I mean, we get into it more on the, on the next show uh, because George Scott takes over as the booker in the middle of January. And we really touch on him towards the end of the show and stuff he's, he's implementing in. But it really starts taking a hold in February. And, yeah, I mean, that's the, it's like night and day in a lot of ways. I mean, there, there's some familiar, you know, faces and, and the guys that stayed. And, of course, you know, some of the, the look. But as 89 goes along, I mean, yeah, it, it becomes a totally different promotion. And that's good. I mean, Dusty and his crew had a great run. They really did. I mean, they have, they have four years of, uh, you know, great television. They did tremendous business, but it's time for a change. And the new, the new bosses, I mean, they basically knew that and they tried to force 
Dusty out, and they, and they succeeded, which we talk about on the show in the contract negotiations with Dusty. He said, I don't want to spoil it. You can listen to it. But they asked Dusty to do something that he didn't want to do, and he, he, he they, because they knew he wouldn't do it. And they said, well, if you're not going to do it, then we're, you know, we'll let you go. And it was, like I said, it was needed. Dusty needed to get re- refreshed and recharged. Um, Rick Flair needed Dusty Rose away. You know, and we needed new blood in, such as Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And now Ricky the Dragon Steamboat comes in, and now you know, the rest is history, you know, with his view of Ric Flair. Yeah, and speaking of Steamboat, I was there eight rows off a of ringside in Chicago when Steamboat won the championship against Ric Flair at the Pavilion. And, and as you well know, uh, in certain places, Charlotte, Atlanta, Chicago, Philly, there's certain places where Flair's going to get cheered no matter what, right? And the same thing here. I mean, we you could find Ric Flair on Rush Street or downtown after matches. People, you could party with Flair because Flair was always around. So he always had that relationship with the, the Blackhawks organization. So it's, it's so Flair was kind of a, a guy around here. When he came into town, you knew about it. Uh, and so, of course, he's going to get cheered. When Steamboat won the championship, Chris... It was really mixed because it was you thought it was going to be a finish where okay Flair wins the championship by disqualification you know how that that finish happened and then Steamboat wins the title and it was a mixed reaction and I'm just wondering that now that we look back at Steamboat where do you play Steamboat amongst others that beat Flair for the title because there was a number of them is Steamboat in that top three top four that in which you thought well maybe Steamboat could carry the title for a while more than a couple of months. Uh, match-wise, right there at the top of the list mm-hmm. as far as match quality. Business-wise, not so much. Um, but <laughs> yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that is not really. I, I don't know how much I put on Steamboat himself. Other, I mean, the fact was he when he was champion, George Scott was booking. They were going through the overhaul. Um, There's a lot of stuff going on. So it's not all his fault. Um, the biggest, the biggest problem with Steamboat, and we'll definitely talk about this on episode two, is the way he was portrayed on television. Mm-hmm. The way he's portrayed on television made guys not want to cheer this dude because you got Ric Flair who's wearing fur coats, he's got all the women. I mean, he's he's living the life, and you got Ricky Steamboat who's touting family values, and he has his Spengali wife and. His young son. And it's, yeah, that's all well and good, but in pro wrestling, that's not going to work. I mean, the thing about pro wrestling, especially with baby faces, is that, you know, more if not, you, you, if you have a handsome guy as a baby face, you don't want to portray him as married. <laughs> I mean, right. because you want to bring the female fans. You know, the old school Southern philosophy is if you don't have women in the crowd, you ain't drawing money. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, Steamboat's a handsome guy and, and always been portrayed, you know, in a different way. And now he's here and now he's married with his son. So it's it's just it's a turnoff for guy fans and for some women fans. Chris Zellner from the Between the Sheets podcast with Jonathan Hood right here on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. We actually go to the Between the Sheets podcast, download that podcast, look for the pay window. They just had their first episode if you're a longtime wrestling fan, you will enjoy that conversation Chris has about our early 89 with the, the NWA. 
Um, a couple of things that resonate with me in that uh, conversation, Chris, in that podcast, and that is just looking at the roster in early 89. And something that you talked about um, hit home with me, talking about wrestlers, I'll give you an example, like Michael Hayes, right? Michael Hayes yeah. for years, always a go-behind or a guy that was a mouthpiece for the Freebirds and actually gets a run uh, with the uh, U.S. title? Is a U.S. US title, title with yeah. Luger? Yeah, mm-hmm. so with Luger. So so I, I noticed watching Michael Hayes and having a run just as a singles wrestler, um, even in world class, I didn't see him enough as a single, just every now and then, because usually he was at ringside with Buddy Roberts and Terry Gordy. And for him to be a single, what does that say about the, the roster at the time that Michael had a, a nice run, I thought, as a singles wrestler? Um. I mean, he he had had a really good run in 1988 World Class, mm-hmm. where he was a babyface feuding with the Freebirds, and he was able to prove there that he could he could handle it on his own. He didn't have to have Terry and Buddy. And you know, what the early story when he comes in the promotion is, in, in the NWA, he's, he wants to try to, you know, show everybody that he's, yeah, he he's still friends with these guys. They're still his brothers, but he wants to do it without them. He wants to go on his own and do his own thing, you know. And what happens, you know, he, he eventually turns heel on Lex Luger and wins the U.S. title and then has it for a little bit and then loses And then Freebirds come back together again. But, you know, which by that point in time, that's fine. But, um, yeah, maybe Michael. Michael's a guy who... He was probably at his best inside the ring in this era. And, uh, I mean, he was still a young guy. I mean, people don't think about Michael Hayes and how young he was because he had been working for so long. I mean, he turned 30 on March 29th, 89. He was 29 in January and February. So he's not even, he's not even 30 yet. I mean, so, I mean, you look at, you look at him, I mean, Luger, Luger's a year older than him. I mean, didn't it seem Lex Luger was younger than Michael Hayes? I mean, by perception, the way he looked. I mean, Sting, Sting is a week, a week and a couple of days older than Michael Hayes. So, I mean, it's pretty wild to think about that. But, but, but he lived such a long, hard life in the 80s, man. But. I mean, yeah, he, he, he was getting to push Butch Reed's another guy who was got a rebirth here from that natural, you know, Butch Reed run in WBF with the blonde hair. So you got him here. Bob Orton Jr. comes in, you know, in a, in a month or two. Uh, and so, so they're giving these guys a different look. Iron Sheet comes in. That's a mistake. I mean, so George Scott's bringing in, like, these brand names, these different types of guys. And uh, they do start bringing in younger talent as well. That's February goes along, like the Samoan SWAT team, Great Muda comes in. So you're starting to get this mix, and they're, they're, they're pushing guys. Rick Steiner's getting, the, getting the, uh, you know, a push. You know, lose, lose the TV title of Shot Down Rumble. But, I mean, you get this mixture of young and old. And, it, again, it's not the same old, same old as you would have got from, like, Dusty Rhodes. So, so there's your contrast to the to Dusty. You know, Chris, I think one of the big conundrums uh, on this roster in 89, and either this is going to be a long-form podcast at some point or a series podcast or a book, it's got to be on Barry Windham. 
I mean, how many how many people have said on the record, including Arn Anderson, saying, you know, Barry was great and he could have been even greater, or you know, uh, Rick wanting to put the title on Barry Windham. I I could see a, a scenario in '89 or '90 if Barry just would have stayed, that it could have been Sting and Barry on top and would have drew, it would have drew as Barry is of course would be the heel in that scenario. I just think that that Barry kind of lost his way. He was almost just following wherever Dusty Rhodes went. Dusty is no longer in the company, and you would think that if you're Barry Windham, like okay, well maybe this is my opportunity here on top. Maybe a, a few world title reigns, and and uh, not just a belt, just being able to have a reign, a sustained run as a world champion up top. He was that good. Maybe we remember those uh, Flair uh, Wyndham matches on worldwide sixty minute matches or matches in Florida that Flair and Wyndham had. He was great, Chris. I it, he is one of the bigger question marks of what could have been, not because of drug use or not because of anything else, but just wanting it and i just wish barry would have wanted it because i was a fan but it just seemed like he was comfortable underneath barry had a lot of issues that that crept up in 89 Mm -hmm. um he had a a serious hand injury that really hurt him um he he had uh issues with the contract which we'll get into as the show goes along um his father and his brother get caught up in a counterfeit money scheme and they have to go to prison. So there's that. He goes to WF with that Widowmaker gimmick, which that flopped. You know, he comes back in nineteen ninety, you know, WCW and you think, okay, now he's back. So now we're gonna get Barry Wyndham again. And he did okay, but it took a it took a while for him to get back to Barry Wyndham status. As far as a worker, I don't know. Something happened um, in '89 that really I don't know. It, it, I don't know what happened to him. I mean, it's one of those things where there's there's athletes like that. They have they have you know the great run, and all of a sudden they just lose it and they never get it, never truly get it back. They they try they show the shades, but they just never can get it back. And he's one of those guys and. Yeah, he should have been. He should have been a world champion. If he stays in '89 and keeps going, I mean, Flair. We we probably we probably don't get Flair and Funk. It's right. going to be Flair and Wyndham, you know. And then, like you said, Sting and Wyndham, or or Luger and Wyndham would be the the, the go plot, the go to play for the big feuds. So yeah, that that definitely happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Chris Elner with us on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Download the big uh, Between the uh, Sheets podcast, the pay window. The first episode is out on that feed for Between the Sheets. Uh, I will ask you about um, uh, about wrestling in general, especially during that day. Of course, we're talking about you talking about George Scott. At some point, this will be a conversation piece on that podcast. George Scott coming in and having those that don't really understand the business or not really wrestlers um, being part of the booking committee. But I, I will, I'll ask you about this generally about the boys running the creative. I just, uh, uh, all the podcasts that you have done and some of my talking points on this show is always is a sour taste when the boys, uh, run the creative. And I'm wondering, even as in the modern day in AEW, how much are the boys running Tony Khan? Because to me, the one thing about Vince in the WWE, and there's some things I disagree with them on. There's no question, but at least there's one man, one voice um, that is has the final say. How much is that really doomed 
wrestling territories over the years where the boys are making decisions more so than the head person. A lot of them. I mean, WCW, uh, God knows. I mean, for years, I mean, these booking committees, that's one thing. I, yeah, a book, you know, booking committee never works. There mm-hmm. needs to be one person to be in charge. And they need to be the one to be the final decision. And, I mean, it's good to have guys to give ideas, but having you know these committees, it's just it's detrimental to the company. Um, it can work. I mean, an active wrestler booking can work, but that active wrestler has to be someone who is secure in himself and is not going to push himself to the moon. Um, they got to know, you know, where to draw the line at. And, you know, that's kind of where Dusty, you know, fell off was he kept, you know, pushing himself. Um, he never took a step back, so to speak. I mean, yeah, he wasn't always in the world title scene, but he was always, the show was about Dusty. The TV shows were about Dusty, no matter what. The guys were talking about Dusty all the time, faces mm-hmm. and heels. So, I mean, that that's one thing. Um, but like it can work. Like I said, Bill Dundee and Mid-South, I mean, Bill Watts told him when he hired him, uh, you're not pushing yourself. You're, I mean, if you want to work, you work low-card, mid-card, you know, matches. That's it. And that worked. And they had a tremendous run of business in 84 and 85. I mean, so it can happen, but there needs to be that one person that's not worried about pushing themselves to be the one, to be the be-all, end-all. Now, I understand where that, that mentality comes from is, like, if you're an active wrestler and you're, you're the booker, your mentality as well, I know I'm not going to screw myself over. So I understand that, but it's just, there's way too many instances of it failing. There's more of it failing than there is more of it succeeding. Let's put that way. Chris, how much is that happening in AEW, to, to your knowledge? I mean, because, um, you know, Omega's got his thoughts, Young Buck's got his thoughts, you know, got their thoughts, Cody Rhodes has his thoughts. I just... I know Tony Khan has is a mouthpiece and is visible, but I, I wonder what that structure looks like as far as as him being the number one guy, or is it more of a committee? Because if that's the case, we again, you've already outlined how that does not work. That's a downfall for AEW if there's five or six people making decisions in that company. Um, it, well, it started out that way. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, at the beginning of the year, I think it. From you know, from just going by you know, talking and stuff, Tony Combat took control and became like the firm hand. But there is still influence. I mean, Kenny Omega still you know has a lot of influence. Um, Cody Rhodes has the most influence, and it's obvious. It's very obvious. You watch you watch the shows and you see who's doing what and who's with who and who's getting pushed and you can definitely tell who's got more more input than others and that's been a point of contention in that company. There are some unhappy executive vice presidents in that company right now. They won't say <laughs> it publicly, but it's true. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's too many chefs in the kitchen. When they said there all these guys are going to be in the same position, it just was a recipe for disaster because 
you can't make everyone happy. It's just not possible in wrestling. Somebody's going to be upset because their their stuff's not getting pushed over somebody else's stuff. So again, Vince, you know, they're going they're going through their problems now. Um, they they had their highs and their lows, but. Vincent Mann, the good, good of the bad, is always the guy who signs off on everything. So he's the, the, the main one in the end. So until there's that, and Tony does have a lot of power, and, he, and he, you know, he has more autonomy than he's ever had. But until there's that concrete, then, yeah, it, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. Um, did you recently, a couple other things I want to ask you before I let you go, Chris, did you just recently upload the, uh, tri-state wrestling with a young Jim Ross? <laughs> yes, sure did. Yeah. yeah. Boy, that was so good. That's, that's how I spent my uh, Sunday night right on the patio. I had the, had the, had the, had the, right there, watering the grass, watching a very young Jim Ross, uh, with, um, in Leroy McGurk's territory in tri-state, man, that even during that time, I think maybe no more than a two or three camera shoot. That was intriguing. That was some good stuff there in your archives. Yeah, and, and see that territory was on this last legs, and they, you know, they had a crew of guys who was just, you know, a hodgepodge. But Snooker was there. That's where Snooker was at right before he went to WWF. And I mean, you just have, you know, this this odd crew and a young Jim Ross there. And Ross, of course, when the territory died, he went to work for Bill. So he goes to Mid South after that, but. Yeah, I mean, this, they were mainly based in Oklahoma, and they ran Little Rock, Arkansas, and places like that, and Springfield, Missouri. And so they had a very small territory. But, I mean, yeah, I, I've had that DVD for years, and I, I never watched it before until recently. And I knew it was there was none of this stuff online, so I decided to throw up on YouTube page. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, people were enjoying it. I'm glad they did. It's just... I love finding stuff like that, different wrestling, you know, from different places. I, I love these oddball places. Like, uh, I love fun, I love Puerto Rico. I love watching wrestling from Puerto Rico. I love watching wrestling from the different Canadian promotions. It's just something different about them, and it stands out compared to, you know, your, your American promotions. I like that variety. I think it's, it's important to have a variety of anything in your life, and uh, wrestling is no different for me. All right, last thing I have for you, and I appreciate your time, Chris. So I grew up in Chicago, so I grew up with uh, Vern's TV in the AWA and Dick the Bruiser at Indianapolis. So that was my two regional promotions along with everything else. Bob I Bob Luce. Satellite. And Bob Luce, yes. <laughs> and crazy Bob <laughs> Luce and Ben's Auto Sales. So that was that was part of my childhood, Bobo Brazil uh, pr- promoting uh, one-stop ribs. Uh, so that was <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, uh, and, and a young-slash-old Bobo Brazil talking about one-stop uh, and selling ribs and beer by the case. Um, so that that was my regional. For you, it's in the South with, uh, with the NWA and WCW. If if you had your choice of a wrestling toy to, territory to grow up in, which one would you have rather grown up in? Ooh. That's tough because, you know, when I was five years old, George Chancho Preston died, mm-hmm. basically. And then Joe Clark Promotions took over, which they just promoted Atlanta. 
we weren't a territory. We were just jump crop emotions. So I, if I was, if I had my choice of having a territory to grow up in, I probably would have been Memphis. <laughs> probably <laughs> Memphis. in Memphis because Memphis <laughs> M- Memphis was just so wild and entertaining and yeah Mid-South was great and Mid-South would be my number two but Memphis is like every every week you just got this wild television show and you know you go to these shows and have these wild gimmick matches and it's just craziness every week so that would be a one. I, I wish I wish I would have was older. I wish I could have been around when Georgia Championship Wrestling was its at its peak in the late seventies. And you know, I, I was born in seventy nine, so I was a baby when you know in the early eighties. But I would have loved to have been around because I heard heard stories about people that went, you know, and, and all this stuff. Like, man, this is just sounds amazing. But you know. I'm just, it just didn't work out that way. Although I had Crockett and WCW, but it just wasn't the same. It wasn't a straight up territory, you know? So that would be it. Memphis and then Mid-South right behind it. Absolutely. So I wrote down for me, Mid-Atlantic, like seventies all the way through, uh, for Mid-Atlantic to see a young Bob Cottle. If he ever was ever young, a young Bob Cottle there, um, (laughs) Uh, on the stick mic and the headphones there turning around looking at the green screen and and doing that just that whole <laughs> that whole piper run just that all everything from mid-atlantic which i just i i'm so fascinated with that uh that territory georgia championship wrestling and surprisingly portland i would have i would have liked to fun yeah, I love portland for the short trips they talk about in portland and uh you just i think you just downloaded something uh from portland or rip oliver's in a two out of three fall match against uh, Tom Zink and had to remember every city that that Portland was going to. Like, I can't believe that he remembered exactly what day and what city that they had to go to in Portland, in the Portland area. And, and, I was like, wow. And they were cutting, and they were cutting promos between the fall. Yes. I mean, they, yeah, they're up there in, in, the, in the Eagle's Nest with Don Koss doing promos in between falls and going back to the ring. I mean, Portland's a hoot. I love Portland wrestling. Absolutely. That'd, that'd be a cool a cool place to go. Cause that was at the flea market. I mean, St. Bar's flea market and stuff, sports arena. I mean, and Don Owen, Don Owen is a trip, you know, the, the old school promoter. I mean, and, and they had a lot of guys at Homestead, like Billy Jack and Rip Oliver and Buddy Rose. And Piper was absurdly loyal to Don Owen. Like, he wouldn't even wrestle on WF shows against Don Owen. I mean, he would he would not do it. He wrestled for Don Owen while in the WWF in 1985. That's crazy. He booked he booked the promotion while he was in the WWF in 1989. <laughs> Although Lynn Denton was the booker of record, but Piper was the booker. So mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. Portland's a great promotion. I love Portland, but Mid Atlantic. Oh yeah, Mid Atlantic. I love Mid Atlantic. I mean, I I would advise everyone to go watch the uh, early shows on the WWE Network that they got out there from '81, '82. It is so fun watching. Watching them in the studio, pre-Dusty, you know, when they got these guys in there. And I wish they had the real older stuff, but, yeah, 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 Midland's great. So we ask you to go to the Between the Sheets podcast and, again, look for the pay window. I'm really excited about what Chris and his crew have uh, together, and uh, Episode 2 will be dropping pretty soon. So check that out. Uh, friend of the program, Chris Zellner, with us. Chris, as always, I appreciate you coming on the show, and thanks for uh, doing this. Absolutely. Can't wait to be back on again. 
It's uh, Chris Zellner with us here on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Talk to you tomorrow at 6 with the baseball show right here on Chicago's Home for Sports, ESPN 1000.